Section 2 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. First Decade, 1327 to 1337. Chapter 1. From the King's Accession to the Fall of Mortimer, Part 1. The new reign began inauspiciously. The young king was a boy of fourteen, the son and namesake of a sovereign deposed for his folly and vice, from whom he inherited the legacy of a smouldering quarrel with Scotland and another with France, a chronic rebellion in Ireland, and a thinned, half-starved, depressed, and miserable population at home. His mother, born Isabel of France, and one of the most odious characters in English history, having deserted her wretched consort, took up her residence with the heir of the kingdom in a foreign capital, and there contrived an invasion of England, which resulted in the dethronement of the reigning king, and ultimately in his cold-blooded assassination. Her chief aider and abettor in this undertaking was Roger Mortimer, an expatriated rebel against her husband's authority, with whom she formed an intimacy the nature of which is hardly doubtful, and who, by the successful issue of the enterprise, found himself in a position wherein he was able for a time to defy the laws and gratify to his heart's content its three ruling passions of covetousness, vanity, and vindictiveness. At the time when Edward III was proclaimed, his unhappy father lay a prisoner in Kenilworth Castle. As the young king refused to accept the crown without the sanction and goodwill of his predecessor, the farce was enacted of sending a parliamentary deputation to Kenilworth to receive the quote-unquote voluntary resignation of the fallen monarch. When the commissioners arrived, he was led in to meet them in a plain black gown, and the object of their coming having been explained, he wept and said, it grieves me much that I have deserved so little of my people, and I humbly beg pardon of all present. But since it cannot be otherwise, I thank you for choosing my eldest son to succeed me. The steward of the royal household then broke his staff of office, as was customary on a king's death. Proclamation was made that all people were released from their allegiance to Edward of Carnarvon, and the commissioners returned to London amid the rejoicings of the populace, to assist at the coronation of Edward III. The king's youth and the unscrupulous ambition of Isabel and the partner of her guilt made him a passive instrument in their hands. They assumed a more than royal authority, appropriated to themselves the estates of the dispensers confiscated in the last reign, and induced the Parliament to assign so large a dowry to the ex-queen that hardly one-third part of the revenues of the crown lands were left for the use of the king. Immediately after the ceremony of the coronation, the king's peace having been duly proclaimed, the great charter was confirmed for the first of thirteen times in this reign. The Parliament then proceeded to appoint the Earl of Lancaster with three other earls, four bishops and four barons, to be guardians and counsellors of the young king during his minority. Mortimer was not one of these, which may perhaps be accounted for partly by his being still under the sentence of attainder passed upon all who had been of the quarrel of the Earl of Lancaster, executed in the last reign. 
but in addition to the odium created by his arrogance and rapacity, there seems good reason to believe that he was beginning to be regarded with suspicion and dislike on account of his relations with the now doubly unfaithful queen of Edward II. Most of the members of the council, however, belonged to the queen's party, and by means of their influence and an unscrupulous disregard of the intentions of Parliament, Mortimer and Isabel were enabled to carry things with such a high hand that no one dared open his mouth for the good of the king or of the kingdom. Edward was crowned on February 1st, and on the same day was admitted by his cousin Lancaster to knighthood, an order to which in those days even kings were proud to belong, and the contemporary ideal of which order he so well fulfilled throughout his career that he claims to rank as the first knight of Europe in his day with perhaps a less questionable right than that upon which George IV aspired to be the first gentleman of Europe in his. No time was lost by the Council of Regency in securing the kingdom against aggression by concluding a treaty with France and issuing orders for the due observance of the thirteen years' truce made with Scotland in 1323. But as will shortly be seen, neither of these precautions was of any avail. For the aged warrior Robert Bruce, hearing of the deposition of Edward II and the accession of a boy king, could not resist the temptation thus offered of reasserting the independence of Scotland. No pains were spared by the English government to avert hostilities, but the Scotch were determined on war, and at Easter 1327 their king sent a formal defiance to Edward, declaring that he would enter England and burn it as he had done before the Battle of Bannockburn. Upon this, a proclamation was issued in King Edward's name, summoning all the tenants of the crown to meet him in arms at Newcastle on May 19th, and a supporting fleet was ordered to sail to Skinburness, a port in the north of Cumberland. While the king was on his way to the rendezvous, news reached him that the Scots had already entered English territory and were ravaging the county of Cumberland, 24,000 strong, under Randolph, Earl of Murray, and Sir James Douglas, the darling of Scottish story, the Bruce himself being too ill with leprosy to lead his army into the field. During the six weeks that King Edward's forces remained at York, conflicting rumors as to the position of the Scotch army were brought to the English camp. Hearing that they were gathering in force at Carlisle, Edward issued orders that all the able-bodied men of the Wapentake of Holderness and the town of Beverley should be marshaled in arms. But attaching more credence to a report that they were laying waste the county of Northumberland, he advanced northward himself to the city of Durham and two days' march beyond. All this time he could gain no information of the present whereabouts of the enemy, though where they had already been was only too evident from the ruins they left on their track, for it soon appeared that while the well-equipped English army, 62,000 strong, was blindly pushing forward in search of them, the nimble Scots had given them the slip and were actually in the rear of their pursuers. The army of the Scots was well adapted for marauding warfare. Every man was mounted on a rough, hardy galloway and carried with him strapped to his saddle all that he wanted for the campaign. 
He was not particular as to changes of raiment, but he brought with him a bag of oatmeal with an iron plate to bake it on, and he knew how to cook the flesh of the English cattle in cauldrons made of their own skins. Thus lightly and independently accoutred, the Scots could march two miles to the English one, and their tactics were to move rapidly from place to place, doing all the mischief they could, and never risking a collision with the main body of the enemy. Finding it hopeless to overtake the Scots or bring them to bay, Edward determined to gain by a rapid march the northern bank of the Tyne and intercept their army on its return. Baggage and stores were sent back to Durham, each man taking with him no more than his arms and a single loaf of bread. They started at midnight and marched till sunrise and all through the following day and crossed the Tyne at Hayden as the sun set. For seven long days they halted there, though their saddles were rotted and their bread sodden by incessant rain. On their forced march, they had been unable to bring with them any protection against the weather, and they had nothing for it but to lie down and sleep in their armor on the soaking ground. The troops were on the point of breaking out in open mutiny when Edward, recrossing the river to better quarters, proclaimed the reward of knighthood and one hundred pounds a year to anyone who would bring intelligence of the position of the enemy. On the fourth day, a Yorkshire esquire, Thomas of Rokeby, rode into the English camp and told the king how, venturing too near the Scottish army, he had been taken prisoner and carried before Murray and Douglas, who, on hearing of the reward proclaimed by the English, had acquitted him of all ransom and sent him to Edward with the message that they were as hot to fight as he to find them. Rokeby then described the position of the Scots, posted some three leagues away on a hill sloping down to the right bank of the Ware. At daybreak, Edward drew out his army in a fair meadow to refresh themselves before the march, and himself withdrew with a number of his knights to a neighboring abbey to confess and receive absolution before the battle which now seemed imminent. When the Scotch saw the Southerners approaching, they drew up in three battles on foot at the bottom of the hill, leaving so narrow a strip between their front and the river that had the enemy succeeded in forcing the passage across, they would have found no room to form on the other side. By this time the English had drawn so near to the bank that each army could plainly see the devices on the shields of the men of the opposite host, and Edward sent a herald to the Scotch commanders to say that if they wanted to fight, he would retire far enough away from the river to give them room to marshal their array, or, if they liked it better, they might draw back and give him room to form on the southern side. It might be thought that this singular proposal, so characteristic of the age of chivalry, could have been made only in those romantic times, but the readers of Herodotus will remember that some eighteen centuries before, the bold queen Tomiris offered precisely the same alternative to Cyrus if he wanted to make trial of the Mesagitae. Douglas was for accepting the proposal, but overruled by the less chivalrous or more prudent Murray, he sent back a message that the Scotch lords were better advised than to follow the counsels of an enemy, that they had slain the English and burnt their villages, and that now was the time for the English to chastise them if they could. Notwithstanding this bravado, 
The Scots knew that it would go hard with them if they were intercepted by the superior forces of the enemy, and trusting to their great rapidity of movement, they suddenly decamped at the dead of night and moved farther up the river, choosing a new position in Stanhope Park, the hunting ground of the Bishop of Durham, from which it was equally hazardous to attempt to dislodge them. The enemy followed, and here again the two armies stood facing each other for fifteen days more. The English suffering much privation, but the Scots feeling quite at home in this rough campaigning. From every midnight till morning the latter kept up such a noise with perpetual and universal shoutings and cries and winding of horns most dismally that it seemed as if all the devils had come to carry them off. On one of these nights, Douglas planned and all but carried out an adventure, the wild and successful audacity of which recalls to mind the midnight raid of Gideon on the host of the Midianites. Putting himself at the head of two hundred well-mounted men-at-arms, he crossed the river below the English camp, and stealing upon and slaying the outwatchers, charged suddenly into the midst of the sleeping army, shouting, A Douglas, a Douglas, die, ye English thieves! Three hundred men were slaughtered half asleep, and Douglas himself made straight for the tent of the young king, the ropes of which he cut with his own sword before he galloped off safe with most of his men in the darkness and confusion. The next evening there was a rumor of another night attack, and the English army stood under arms all through the hours of darkness. At daybreak, two trumpeters were brought in from whom they learned that the Scotch had decamped and crossed the river in the middle of the night and were now many leagues off on the way home to Scotland. Such was the suddenness of their departure and the plenty of their supplies that the English found in the deserted camp five hundred oxen and deer already killed, three hundred cauldrons of broth cooking in undressed skins stretched across stakes, and one thousand spits with meat on them ready for roasting. Five poor English prisoners were discovered, tied to stakes, still alive, but with their legs broken. End of Section 2